The people who've been to Aiden Hall, they're, they're not just great sort of engineers and technical people and good scientists, they're also really great people. In this episode, I'm talking with Shanti Flynn. She's the former Chief Human Resources at ADECO, building on 35 years of experience across retail, manufacturing, healthcare, and services. We're going to talk about her story and about why ETH Zurich is important to her. This is the We Are ETH podcast, and I'm Susan Kish, your host. Shanti, we met back in the days before COVID 2018, when you came and spoke at that Global Talent Summit at the at the ETH. You were fantastic. Oh, Susan, you're too kind. <laughs> It was a great, a great privilege to be there. It was a wonderful day. And I just wondered, those were the days before COVID. Life is different now. And I understand that you actually attempted to move between countries during COVID. Is that rumor true? And what was that like? <laughs> well, it was a very interesting uh, journey for us. And, um, you know, in terms of leaving Zurich, which was a wrench for us as well as a family, because we all loved living in Zurich and uh, um, and uh, loved being in Switzerland. How long were you there? Uh, five years. So, oh, that's a length um, of time. Yes. And I bought my flat in uh, um, overlooking the lake. So oh, I was very nice. lucky to to have such a wonderful view and swim in the lake in the summer. But uh, yeah, we, we did move in COVID and it was interesting because I was able to, um, I had to video view houses that we were moving to. <laughs> I had to guess at the school that my three daughters were going to have to go to and you look at video tours. So everything was on video wow. and talking to people remotely and we couldn't actually visit the area personally because of their quarantine, the school's quarantine, estate agents' um, quarantine rules, we couldn't actually physically go anywhere and visit places in person. So that was tricky. Wow. So yes, we put an offer in on a house based on a video tour. And um, the girls went to school based on a video tour. So um, yes, it was it was all tricky. But then, um, you know, I'm a very strong believer in once you've made your decisions, then just go with it and adapt as you go. Fantastic. Let's let's go to the other end. Let's go to how life started or how your career started. If I understand correctly, you studied physiology and pharmacology yes. at the University of Manchester, which sounds like a perfect path to go pre-med. <laughs> but that's not what you did. Can you sort of talk about how you went from your studies to a, a pretty illustrious career in the area of human resources? Well, it was interesting um, working in laboratories at university and, and doing lots of scientific analysis, which I loved. I did realize that my real passion and talent was actually dealing with people, but I had no idea what career options were available to me. So I went and sat in the Manchester Careers Office, <laughs> uh, looked at careers that didn't have a specific degree requirement that involved dealing with people. <laughs> and it was quite an interesting journey because, of course, I didn't know any human resources people. I didn't know anyone who'd ever done a job like this. So right. it was a bit of a kind of uh, shot in the dark. But having spent my whole career dealing with people of all functions in multiple sectors around the world, I had a lucky break is probably the best way of describing it. Because as I look at other functions, 
I realised it was the best place for me. I enjoyed my life, my career. I enjoyed being in that function, which was always, for me, and organisations at the heart of everything, because most of the organisations I've worked with have been very people intensive. And as a result, the people element of the strategy has been key to success. Mm-hmm. That helped me. I would have ha- hated to be too peripheral. Well, in other words, it really gave you a seat at the table for some of those big decisions. It, it did. And that started re- really in my early days with Ford Motor Company because it was a highly unionized company and I was in a manufacturing site where we had close to 10,000 people working on the site building a couple of thousand cars a day that was in the old days in the 80s when we still had that scale of manufacturing going on 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 the auto side so that was my rude awakening to the world of work from uni and having done physiology and pharmacology to go straight into a car plant with well basically mostly men because in those days in factories and on shifts it was pretty much all men working factories because of the factory law what's the factory law Well, this is a a revelation to me at the time as well, is that I started work in 1986 in September. Mm -hmm. And a legacy from World War II was that the factory law was brought in to, to take the women out of the factories who were building war vehicles in the UK because the men were at war. But in order in 1945, in order to get the women out of the factories, they created the factory law so that men could have their jobs back. Oh, you are kidding me. It made it illegal to hire women onto shifts in factories until 1986 when the Sex Discrimination Act came in. (laughs) And I was perfectly placed as an industrial relations officer hiring line workers at the time to hire the very first women on shifts in that plant in September 86. So that was. And in fact, Dagenham, which is the plant I worked in, was also the birthplace of the Equal Pay, Equal Value Act for women anywhere in the world. So if you've ever seen a film called Made in Dagenham, it was set in 1966 and the sewing machinists of Dagenham fought for equal pay, equal value, and they changed the law in the UK and the other countries followed. So it was a pretty groundbreaking place to start my career. (laughs) I was about to say, do you have any specific (laughs) anecdotes that you still remember? Oh, well, there's almost too many to mention. Working in a car plant with um, with with a lot of men who didn't see very many women except in catering. But there was a lot of catcalling. I'm not lying when I said there was a plenty of, of pornography lining the walls as well. And uh, so it was a rather strange entry into the world of work. Yeah, we had lots. There was always lots of people being dismissed for drugs and fighting and all sorts of other things. So that was, again, a, a rather tough way to start a career. And I honestly... <laughs> (laughs) can say I never had another job that was harder than those first three years in the car plant because every day was full of conflict and something crazy going on and um, you know there was one incident where um, in the engine plant where uh, we woke up in the morning and it was during the Gulf crisis actually Gulf Mm -hmm. War crisis the first one and um, we woke up to half the side of the engine plant had been blown out in the night and everyone thought it was a terrorist attack but in fact it was some line workers had decided that they were going to set up a gun club and made a cannon, which they'd fired a <gasps> fired a cannonball through the wall on purpose. Yes, they were supposed to be working, <laughs> but they were actually <laughs> had a gun club instead. So I have hundreds of those stories, but um, I, I don't know whether you're going to want to devote too much of our podcast to those. That- 
<laughs> is fantastic. <laughs> they blew a cannon through the wall of the plant. <laughs> wow. And if I understand correctly, you were doing industrial relations, which meant you were sort of the bridge between the office and the floor? Basically, yeah. I mean, and uh, it was an interesting position to be in because, you know, many occasions you had a, a lot of sympathy with the unions and with the workers. When we were stripping asbestos out of the plant, health and safety was a, a massive concern. Mm -hmm. So you were kind of more fighting with the unions to get good health and safety equipment in right. and making sure management did the right thing. And I've I've got a strong belief, which is uh, most organisations don't need a union if the management are doing the right thing. And when unions form, it's usually because there is some fear or some actual exploitation going on. Or, so they lost trust. And trust gets diminished and a union is required then to try and make management hear that there are genuine concerns. And so when mm -hmm. when workers strike and they have grievances, I have an absolute ear for what are those grievances now? Are they things that can be avoided is the organisation trying to do too much to drive profits at the expense of the, the the welfare and well-being of your workforce? And there always has to be a balance. You can't obviously throw away all your profits in order mm -hmm. to in order to do you know great things for your employees. You've got to strike a balance. And obviously, there are other occasions where you've got to to do a pay de deal, and it has to be affordable. So again, you've constantly got to make these kinds of decisions that bridge the gap. So yes, that's exactly what industrial relations was, and the, the terminology of human resources didn't exist at the time. If I understand correctly, you went from there to Boots, which is very much a UK company. It really was. And um, at one point, there was a survey in the UK of which organisations and brands do you trust the most? And Boots came out at, at number two, I think, behind the NHS, I think it was. Uh, Boots was uh, highly innovative, very creative. Really? Yes, highly innovative. Huh. It was ahead of its time. It had very high margins on own label products. It had a vertically integrated supply chain. They were the first organization to have electronic point of sale, which were these tills that captured data. So it was really interesting being there because most people would not associate Boots with being innovative. It also no. was the first to do three for two deals. You're kidding. So three for the price of two. Yeah, it pioneered <laughs> so many things that people take for granted. Yes, it was an interesting place to work. And I did do a UK-based job, but it was with them that I got my international experience because I was the head of HR for their international businesses, both FMCG healthcare as well as retail. FMCG, so fast-moving consumer goods? Consumer goods. So because Boots had a pharmaceutical division before, it had, had sold that. And what it was doing was it was basically selling off-patent drugs that they had created. So you may not be aware ibuprofen mm -hmm. was created by Boots. You're kidding. Oh, my gosh. And did you move overseas? Well, for Boots, I was traveling into Asia a lot because we were we were creating and growing stores in Taiwan. We had a joint venture partnership with Mitsubishi. So that was my first taste hmm. of, of uh, being a JV partner and also my first taste of how not to do it. So Boots wait, were... Wait, wait, wait. That sounds like an interesting story. What do you mean by... <laughs> 
What do you mean by why and how not to do that? Well, it was a 50-50 partnership, which is a disaster right. on any JV. So you should always have a skew one way or the other so that you don't get stalemate on any decisions. And Mitsubishi had about 2,000 joint venture partnerships in Asia and Boots had one. So that tells you the experience and savvy level <laughs> is Mitsubishi Corporation had an investment committee that just decided whether they were going to continue with various ventures that they'd got into. And that committee would make decisions. What There was a clause that the mergers and acquisitions guy who had not done that many deals and had certainly not done many JV deals at the time, they'd done acquisitions and divest. This is the boots guy you're speaking of. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't spot the termination clause that Mitsubishi put in, which meant that they could give us a month's notice on terminating a business. Whoa. So Mitsubishi <laughs> decided one day that they didn't want to be in, in partnership with Boots anymore. And we had a month to close the business, which was absolutely one of the most awful experiences of my career because me and the finance guy were having to find a way of, of making sure that the individuals got treated well, which was fishing in our pockets pretty deep. But we also had 20 million million pounds worth of product on the water going to Japan to uh, feed the stores that were dedicated to the Japanese market. Oh my gosh. I mean all of these things in the in the moment they are they can be stressful and awful. When you look back you realize they help you inform lots of other decisions later on in your career. Absolutely. And after that you stayed who is the who is the Watson group? Now, the Watson Group, uh, you know, before Unilever and Procter & Gamble decided to make themselves well known and everyone was using their products without knowing they were behind it. It mm -hmm. was It's a bit like that. So Watson's Group had eight and a half thousand stores across the world. And I worked directly for the CEO um, of, the, of the group as his head of HR. He, his vision was to lower the risk profile of the group. In order to do that, he wanted to be less weighted in Asia and more weighted in Europe. So he went on a spending spree in Europe and bought up a lot of organizations. And I was me, the finance guy and the um, legal guy were his due diligence team. I remember we bought a business called Marino, which is a French, was a French perfume, luxury cosmetics and perfume business. And it had 500 stores in France alone and it was in seven eight, or eight countries. I remember having to hire someone to run that organization. It was a big organization. We didn't have anyone internally to succeed. And I had to hire someone and tell him he was going to be paid in euros, but I couldn't tell him what he was going to be doing, except he was going to be running this enterprise. <laughs> but because it was listed on the French Stock Exchange and, we, and it was in the process of being delisted, it was commercially sensitive information. Oh, so you couldn't tell him for what company he was going to raise? No. And the person said yes? He, I, yeah, I had to engage in my most extreme persuasive <laughs> skills. He and I are still in touch, actually. So it's, uh, I can only imagine. I am very impressed. But it sounds like that was a lot of fun. So what drew you to Walmart, another classic American company? Whilst I was at the Watsons Group, I had two of my three children. So I took ah. two sets of maternity leave. Yeah. In three years, I went back after three months. I worked until a week before I had both of them. And I wasn't a young mum either. I was kind of just 40 when I had my oldest. So I took three years out. The jobs I've done for many years have been really all or nothing. And so I knew that for me to 
do justice to my girls. I had to step off. And I will tell you this, and you know, it's it is a true story. This is that I had said to headhunters, I you know, I, I my profile is such that it is quite interesting to headhunters because I've got manufacturing, retail, and services now on the on my profile. So headhunters would kind of I was a bit of an easy easy target, mm-hmm. and I would get a call at least once a year, and I'd always say no, I'm looking after my family, and yeah, no, I'm not going back. And then one day. Karen Pfeiffer of Hydric and Struggles called me and um, she hit a day where I'd honestly been saying to my older daughter, can you stop biting your sister on the face? <laughs> and I must have said it about three times. I mean, she was only four or five at the time. So she was small, but I don't know why she insists. And I just said, yes, I'm going to talk to Walmart. I will talk to them. <laughs> I've had enough. I'm out of here. The following day, <laughs> if they called me, I probably would have said no. But in that particular, and that was I in the November. Totally. By the March, I was I was working for Walmart. I I have three kids under three, over forty. I totally get this. Totally, <laughs> totally get this. Please let me go to the office. Uh, Yes. So that was my rude awakening into Walmart. But what was interesting for me is having had three years out was I didn't think I could do the big job anymore. Right. I was nervous because, I mean, my vocab had shrunk to about eight words. (laughs) Don't stop. (laughs) My mental capacity seemed to have also shrunk. And um, so I honestly didn't think I could hold my own at that senior level. I knew what it was like to have to make fast decisions, people relying on you, you're kind of dealing with complex things and firefighting all the time. And so I wasn't sure. So I did take a step down for the first time in my career when I went back in and I was working for another HR person for the first time in 15 years. So, you know, he was a nice guy, liked him. But six months later, he moved on and they gave me the job. So I only had six months of grace. (laughs) And then I was the head of HR for the Asia region. And we had 150,000 people in the region across Japan, China, India and Hong Kong. So it was a a pretty big. That's a big job. So then you took another year and a half, did your own business. And then you went to ADECO. Is that how that worked? Yes, I I thought I was kind of in semi-retirement, kind of, you know, I had the fast-paced life. I'd been on far too many planes and done too many air miles and actually, you know, juggling the family and uh, and big jobs was, was you know, it, it takes it out of you. So it really does. I thought that that was it. And then I got persuaded um, to live in Zurich, of course. What, what, what really, <laughs> I mean, actually Zurich. I can say that now that I've left a deco, but Zurich was actually the bigger draw, <laughs> if I'm being brutally honest. I've never thought about living in Switzerland. It hadn't right. been on my radar. But as you can tell from my career path, I was an apt- absolute opportunist when mm-hmm. it came to my career. And when really good opportunities presented themselves, I, you know, I feel lucky that I was able to take those decisions and take those chances because that's what grew me gave my family opportunities that they might not have had and gave us a really interesting perspective and set of experiences I I learned and was able to apply all my various other sectors to that which was great and had a chance to meet with all of you guys so we come full circle (laughs) because it was my deco job that got me introduced to ATHA of course Exactly. So tell us about how did you get introduced to the ETH and why do you think, what is the role that you see ETH playing in Zurich or even on a larger stage? 
You don't have to look too, too far to see that ATI is now appearing in many in the top five, in some cases, top three for a whole variety of advancing technologies, AI. There's so much pioneering good science, good work going on. And Switzerland is, is famous for its engineering backdrop, its precision, its pursuit of perfection, if you like. That's a good phrase. And the people who've been to Eteha, they're, they're not just great sort of engineers and technical people and good scientists, they're also really great people. You touched on two points that I just wanted to pursue when you talk about the ETH. One is ethics and one is AI, right? And I don't know about you, but I've been playing with this chat GBT, right? I, I wrote in a question about what is the future of work, right? And it came back with this great essay. And it's actually, you know, it's about leveraging technology, be more flexible, diversity. I'm thinking like, wow, you know, that's all just from a pr- one short phrase prompt. But can you, why did you bring up and what do you think would be the importance of issues like ethics and issues like AI? And how do all these weave into the future of work? Because they all sort of feel connected. Well, I think, you know, and I'm a big believer in, in terms of leadership, is that if you don't lead from a position of ethics and values, you will make bad decisions. That's it. And, you know, an ethical framework to your decision making is what allows you to distinguish doing the right thing in the right way and for the right reasons than doing the wrong things. And, you know, I've bumped into plenty of people who've made bad decisions. And so I think ethics is fundamental. And, you know, we've seen plenty of corrupt politicians, corrupt practices. In the end, you know, you you know, it's very difficult to run any organization, country, even in your family, you need to have some kind of ethical framework. And it's not about religion. It's simply about saying this is the right thing to do as opposed to doing this for all the wrong reasons and driving bad outcomes. So ethics for me is critical as a backdrop and as a as a if you like the concrete foundation to anything that you build on top of it if you've got a bad ethical framework your your decisions will ultimately crumble it's not sustainable and within or with that as context how do the worlds of ai and technology intersect with this question of ethics well just because you can do something doesn't mean you should and I think sometimes the fact that technology can move faster than the ethical framework within it, you know, that can guide it, because often people will go off on a, you know, and they'll they'll be way ahead of the individuals who are saying, well, how do you ring fence these decisions to make sure that the when in the wrong hands, it doesn't take us on a path that we can't get back from? You know, I remember having a conversation about data analytics and HR, and a lot of organizations were doing and still are doing an awful lot of background checking Mm -hmm. on their own people as well as on future employees. Now, background checks has always been a a difficult area ethically because, you know, in various countries, there's laws, rightly so, that protect individuals from overchecking them and, and denying people jobs because of something, some misdemeanor or 
a dodgy Facebook page. You know, it's mm-hmm. it, it shouldn't be employers judging an imp- individual because of something they put on their social media network. 20 years ago. So I think there's these sorts of things have to be ring fenced uh, because otherwise what happens is people start making bad judgments and not being fair. It's very easy. And then I remember when we were contemplating buying a, a very large freelance network platform. Mm-hmm. I asked the question about self-fulfilling prophecies on selection, right? Because mm-hmm. AI is a very interesting one on self-fulfilling. Because if you say, I will only want to hire someone who's got this level of qualification, has worked in these different locations, blah, 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 and then that person gets a job, what happens is it feeds, it creates a positive feedback loop. And then the algorithm will constantly be narrowing and narrowing your field. So you end up with less and less diversity of candidates because you will get. By definition. By definition, this person was successful. It feeds back into the algorithm. So they then only look for those people with a narrower and narrower frame. Then they'll only feed those candidates to the employers. And as a result, they will only be hiring those candidates because they're only being fed a certain profile. So you cut the diversity out completely and you start to narrow the field. So there's lots of bad consequences to what sounds on the surface to be a great piece of tech. But you you do need to be careful that it doesn't, you know, that people stop thinking right. about whether this is the right outcome and checking back. Does this is this where we want to be? Are we just sort of almost slaves to the tech when, in fact, we need to be thinking about whether the tech is helping us get the right decisions? So what is the role of an institution with the, the global footprint, as the expression goes, of something like the ETH in these questions? I think trying to get ahead of those ethical questions as the, or before the technology has advanced to the point where it's difficult to pull it back. Mm-hmm. So if you look at, um, you know, and there's lots of debates about whether at what point do you consider an, an AI to be sentient? The role of ATH is is one where having those discussions and debates well ahead of the technological advancements, it can challenge and put the framework in. So I think ATH, with all of the big brains, are able to kind of scan forward and do the Asimov on the future of technology and say, okay, which ones have got this capacity to turn us into a Terminator scenario and which ones are not? Where, Where do we have to ring fence? I think only really good scientists and people who understand the technological opportunities and uh, where the where the boundaries could be, they're the only ones who can get ahead of it because most people just don't know what's within the realms of possibility. Shanti, within the ETH circle, I understand you've been involved in that pilot around mentoring. Can you give us a bit of background? Yeah, the interesting thing um, is that um, my t- two of my girls are going to uni, you know, they have gone on all the analytics of student satisfaction and student welfare and support. And that f- featured as a major reason to where they apply. I would push that very hard because students are very savvy about that now, about how well supported are students, both in terms of their learning, mentoring, etc. Makes sense. So thank you so much. This has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, we'll have to make sure that the ETH takes the time to, as you said, do the Asimov uh, and look to these questions around the future and the role of technology and 
the ETH's role as a steward. But I do have a couple closing questions that we always like to ask. So when you think back to your five years in Zurich, what was your favorite place that you like to hang out, to have coffee, uh, to walk around or, or do things? Swimming in the lake in the morning in Rushlikon when no one else was in it was absolutely without parallel. Fantastic. Fantastic. And when you were little and were thinking about what you wanted to be when you grew up, what were the top couple of things you wanted to be? Oh, gosh. Um, it depends how far back I go, really. Um, I think uh, being an astronaut was fairly early on. But more recently, I, I, I now am on the board of trustees of BRAC, which is the um, BRAC UK, but it's the l- largest NGO in the world. And it's d- doing an amazing amount of work with Veltrapur in Bangladesh and many countries in Africa. So that's uh, my new passion. And just helping people who can't help themselves was always something I wanted to do. And now I've got a bit more time to do it. That's a wonderful thing and a wonderful note to close. Shanti, thank you so much for your time. This has been fantastic. Thank you, Susan. Always a pleasure. I'm Susan Kish, host of the We Are ETH series. And we tell the stories of the alumni and the friends of the ETH, the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich. ETH regularly ranks amongst the top universities in the world with cutting-edge research, science, and people. The people who were there, the people who are there, and the people who will be there. These are their stories. Please subscribe to We Are ETH and join us for more conversations. And note, we have a new feed. And join us wherever you listen. Give us a good rating on Spotify or Apple if you enjoyed today's conversation. I'd like to thank our producers at ETH Circle, Victoria Iverson and Claudine Beck, as well as Eli Media, Andreas Volschreger. And thank you, our listeners, for joining us.